Welcome to Ageless by Rescue. This podcast is devoted to exploring the science of rejuvenation, uncovering the most trusted experts, the must-have products, innovations, and technology in the field of vitality, aesthetics, new beauty, and cosmetic enhancement. I'm delighted to introduce you to Professor George Paxinos, a neuroscientist who has been credited with something quite remarkable. Professor Paxinos has identified and named more brain areas than anyone in history. He's a Greek-Australian neuroscientist who is credited for having mapped the brain and spinal cord of humans. He studied at Berkeley, McGill and Yale universities and was a visiting scientist at Cambridge, Oxford, Stanford and UCLA. He's a professor of medical sciences at Neura and the University of New South Wales and was the past president of the Australian Neuroscience Society and the World Congress of Neuroscience. George Paxinos is also the author of 57 books on the subject of brain cartography, and his first book, The Rat Brain, is the most cited publication in neuroscience and for three decades, the third most cited book in science. More recently, Professor Paxinos published his first novel, A River Divided, which uses his vast knowledge to examine the limits of science and the brain and considers the contributions of nature and nurture in the formation of attitudes. In this truly fascinating conversation with the dynamic, authentic, and charming scientist and philosopher, we discuss brain health, strategies for delaying dementia, and the future possibilities of regenerative medicine and nootropics on brain health. We also discuss intelligence, the role of genetics, poverty, and lifestyle in determining brain function and performance. He shares insightful advice on the impact of diet, exercise, and trauma, both physical and emotional, life experience, and education on optimizing our brain health. If you've never listened to an episode of Ageless by Rescue, I would urge you to make this your first. This is truly one of the most wonderful conversations I've ever had, and certainly one that I am so proud to bring you. Professor George Paxanos, I have listened to so many of your podcasts and interviews, and for me, it is such an honor to have you on the Ageless by Rescue podcast. I always say that the key to agelessness and everything that I've read is, you know, um, there are key things that have to happen. You have to have a healthy brain, a healthy skeletal system, and a healthy heart. And to have the honor of having you, a gentleman who's mapped more parts of the brain than anyone else on the planet on the show is, is really wonderful for me. Thank you for being here. There are a lot of people interested in postponing dementia. We will age, and the brain, um, amongst uh, all other organs, uh, indeed, uh, it is uh, the most evident uh, that is uh, uh, because that there resides uh, uh, what we are, and uh, uh, it will age, and I presume none of us will not be not demented by the age of 100 if we make it to that. Uh, but the wow, but, that's not good news. <laughs> yeah, they, they, in fact, uh, one in two of us will have uh, dementia uh, by about uh, the age of eighty-six. Either you or me, 
uh, and the battle is to postpone that date. So instead of being uh, 86, or half of us to be 87, 88. And there are ways that the neuroscientists have found to assist people with this. Uh, specifically, uh, well, to just put a disclaimer, neuroscience has not cured any disease, but neuroscientists are not altogether useless. They <laughs> hardly useless. They have identified factors that uh, predispose the person uh, to dementia, uh, including Alzheimer's disease, uh, and uh, factors that uh, can postpone dementia uh, amongst the best, uh, probably the most significant factor is exercise, physical exercise, that is walking, running, swimming, rowing, cycling, or group sports provided you don't hit your head because hitting the head is a predictor for earlier onset dementia than otherwise uh, and uh, there are other factors of course such as uh, uh, good eating habits uh, and indeed uh, the cardiologists who emphasize the health of the heart inadvertently they have resulted in a delay in the onset of dementia. Uh, it might sound paradoxical to your listeners, but fewer people are dementing today at their 80th birthday than 50 years ago. Of course, per percentage-wise, not the absolute number, because we are more... Uh, now and therefore there'll be more people dementing but the percentage of people who are at their 80s and they're dementing is a smaller percentage than that 50 years ago and this uh, scientists attribute to the emphasis of the cardiologists on the health of the heart uh, diet exercise cessation of uh, uh, smoking. There are, of course, other predictors of uh, dementia, that is, that will bring dementia earlier, such as depression, um, apnea, and people can do something about this, especially apnea, that is there. Uh, should visit their So clinic. by apnea, you mean sleep apnea, where you're yes. not getting enough oxygen during your sleep? Yes. Um, other things too. Uh, education. Um, of course, uh, uh, some claim that also remaining active intellectually assists. It makes sense, but the data are not that strong, as strong as exercise. So the data on neuroplasticity through um, novel uh, experiences, um, brain training is not as strong as physical health changes yeah yeah that is right and it's yes. funny because out in the you know um uh, information uh, space the buzzword is neuroplasticity try new things uh learn a language learn how to play a musical instrument but you're quite right there isn't nearly as much emphasis on the basics of you know environmental and lifestyle change I, I want to ask you about the seminal work that you've gifted humanity, um, which is the Atlas of the Brain. And I want you to explain to our listeners and viewers 
what you did, why, and what this means. Yeah, well, I mean, I did it because it, it was interesting to me. So let's say what it is first, because um, I think that yeah. I'll introduce it by saying that um, you are the person who has mapped more parts of the human brain than anyone else. And you did this by uh, applying a stain, which then created what you refer to as the atlas of the human brain. Uh, yeah, roughly so. That is, uh, I am the person who identified more parts in uh, the brain of humans and experimental animals um, than anyone before. Uh, and uh, the way we did that uh, up to now, and I'll mention what we do now in a minute, uh, was to obtain the brain that is a solid out of a skull, uh, freeze it, have a sophisticated salami slicer that costs $100,000 and take very thin sections. So you go from one end to the other of the brain and then we study what is there and we relate this to the brain of other animals such as the chimpanzee and the rat and the monkey and the bird. Uh, we've studied them and find what corresponds. And we make a, a three-dimensional map of uh, the various brains. Uh, it's like a Google map, but in 3D. Uh, and uh, uh, we uh, then provide the coordinates if someone wants to uh, study uh, what is, uh, or to interfere with the part of the brain, stimulate it or lesion it or damage it and see what happens to behavior, to function, uh, then they can use our coordinate system. Uh, wow. And then uh, they also, well, you see, scientists love nothing more than constructing an animal model of disease, be it uh, Alzheimer's in the mouse, uh, uh, Parkinson uh, in, in also the mouse, uh, or uh, epilepsy in the rat, uh, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia in the rat. They love nothing more than doing that, but then they need a way to uh, 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 travel from the human to the rat, inspired by the human considerations, and test their hypotheses in the rat or the bird or whatever. Uh, and then relate their observations back to humans. And we provide these maps so that they can uh, uh, travel uh, unimpeded uh, to test their hypotheses. Uh, and uh, we have found uh, areas of the brain of experimental animals and humans that are corresponding, much as you look at your eyes and the rat has eyes. And in fact, uh, the uh, areas of the brain that control eye movement in humans and rats are corresponding, uh, are the same. Uh, and uh, we establish what is the same in uh, rats and humans. Not everything is the same in the rat and human, but as it turns out, everything is the same in the chimpanzee and uh, human in the brain that is other than the size that the chimpanzee has half the size of uh, the brain, only 600 grams compared to 
1.3 kilograms for humans. Uh, the areas that are found in our brain are also found in the chimpanzee brain and vice versa. So in whatever else you may resemble the divine Bahar in your brain, you are made in the image of the chimpanzee. Uh, I'm going to ask you just to pick up on that. On You mentioned the divine. And for me, this was a really interesting aspect of the work that you do. You know, um, is the brain who we are? Is it where the soul resides? Is it our super consciousness or is it merely an organ that helps the physical body function? Right. Well, brain has been uh, initially not in favor. The ancient Egyptians discarded the brain heedlessly and sent millennia of pharaohs brainless to their afterlife. Uh, it was Hippocrates, uh, the ancient Greeks, who uh, said that uh, from the brain and from the brain alone derive uh, our pleasures, uh, uh, gesture, uh, as well as our uh, pain, grief, and tears. Uh, and uh, uh, of course, if you look now uh, to buy a Valentine's card with a brain on it, good luck. I went to Bondal Junction. Uh, it's only the heart. <laughs> But it's in the brain. It's in the brain. Anyone who's gone crazy in love will know that it is most certainly the brain that controls love. Well, I'm glad you agree. But this is not what is depicted. I went there to find a card for my partner. And I was confronted in the injunction with 300 cards, all of them with at least one red heart on them, none of them with the brain. And uh, I wrote a letter in uh, the newspaper in the conversation. Uh, uh, Darling, I love you from the bottom of my brain. Uh, and uh, a journalist from Melbourne called me and she asked, are you insisting that the heart has nothing to do with love? I said, in, if in a heart transplant, I receive your heart, I am not going to fall in love with your husband. <laughs> True. She said, what a pity. And he's such a lovely man. Uh, so, uh, yes, the, the, it is the brain what we are. And this is evident uh, when uh, you, I mean, you mentioned, uh, mentioned Alzheimer's disease earlier. Um, we'll have an unwelcome visit, most of us, before we die and uh, uh, our brain would shrink and so will uh, uh, our uh, consciousness of various things uh, to the point where at first uh, you will of course just not remember recent events you still remember the old events then you will start losing the old events you will not recognize your children you will not recognize you will not know who you are and the only thing you can correlate that is the brain. Uh, and uh, therefore, this consciousness, which is a big problem for neuroscientists because they don't know exactly uh, what uh, feelings are, why we feel love. They know where it resides, but uh, exactly how you perceive color, how you're satisfied, you feel hungry, uh, or you feel happy, uh, that they don't know, 
but the uh, there's no doubt I mean, they, there's no debate on this that it is uh, the brain if it were the soul well i mean uh, they, nobody used the word soul even psychology no academic psychologist that i know of uses the word soul i believe none does nowhere there's no need to hypothesize that the soul exists something immaterial that possibly even survives death and goes to hell and it's burned for a million or whatever infinity burned uh, in uh, intense heat and it's it is feel liberated if you had any worries about that uh, listen to the neuroscientists there's no risk you your soul will not burn in hell no uh, just believe the neuroscientists that you do not have uh, an immortal soul that there's no need for the soul and uh, uh, and move on to something better in this world rather than something that there's no evidence for in the world that there's no evidence for uh, so uh, the uh, concept of the soul is not required for psychology uh, if the soul is where sensations uh, become perceptions where uh, logic resides where decisions are made where love is manufactured where memories are stored then there is no reason to hypothesize its existence because there is already an organ which uh, performs these functions just imagine if you have a knock on your head you might lose memory for the last couple of seconds or if it's a strong knock for the last few years if uh, it was that memory stored in your soul that should not be lost because memory the soul is immaterial and it is not going to suffer from a concussion and damage to the brain so uh, there's no need uh, just uh, free yourself uh, if you ever had any delusions of uh, having a soul and there any worries? I absolutely do have delusions of um, having a soul. So I'm glad I'm having this conversation with you. Um, I'm going to ask you something about the correlation between uh, psychology and neuroscience and the where they meet and where you help psychology. So the work that you did was on a post-mortem brain. Uh, and so you've mapped the human brain and uh, looked at it vis-a-vis -vis other mammals and um but what happens in that uh, i i guess one of the first things i'm interested in is what about intelligence is there why is there somebody who is more intelligent than another and can you dial up intelligence or is this a genetic predisposition right uh, this question has been settled by psychologists some uh, many years ago uh, that uh, uh, because psychology at least some of it is neuroscience itself uh, that they are the Venn diagrams that you exactly uh, yeah uh, the domains but uh, it was D.O. Hebb happened I happened to study under him who in 1949 described intelligence as something that uh, is formed by two things 
genetic predisposition and environmental influences on that. So uh, if uh, uh, not everybody's uh, genetically endowed the same, the brain uh, might have had the benefit of uh, a gene working just a little bit longer in someone and conferred some greater predisposition for intelligence. Who knows what uh, are the genes for intelligence, but there would be uh, certainly uh, predispositions. Uh, then, of course, uh, the environment. And the environment starts from early on, uh, actually, even from the donation of the sperm or egg. But let us just stay be beyond the egg and the sperm to the zygote, to the first embryo, beginning of the embryo. Now, if the mother is drinking, smoking, well, that's already a disadvantageous, disadvantageous environment. So that person will not uh, actualize their genetic potential. If uh, the uh, family is poor, they are less likely to check for um, gestational diabetes or for factors which may result in uh, uh, insufficiency of uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the uterus uh, uh, of the uh, lacunda, the placenta. placenta, yeah, the placenta in the third trimester. And they don't take the appropriate steps to mitigate that uh, expected insufficiency because they didn't do the right uh, uh, prenatal tests. If they are poor, they're already condemned. They will develop Alzheimer's disease uh, and other dementias earlier. Okay. Is so, that part of nutrition as well? Is that also part of the nutrition for sure? Uh, but not to consider the other uh, effects uh, that is even uh, uh, drinking themselves later on in life. Uh, all these things are predictors, poor diet, all that is are predictors, poor diet of the mother. You start from there, you are condemned from, if you're poor, to contract dementia earlier. Uh, and therefore the intellect is affected both by the genetic endowment and also by the environmental influences on uh, this endowment. One thing that I've never heard anybody, of course they might have said it, but I just haven't heard somebody say, is that motivation itself is environmentally and genetically affected, right? So you say, oh, all those poor people there, they don't care. Well, wait, you know, the environment in which they developed did not assist them to, to develop motivation, the drive. And, and, and this is a societal problem. And I don't know if you remember when we were in the lockdown period, all um, uh, people over 70 had to be locked in, not to step outside their house, except the Aborigines. They had to be locked in after uh, 50 years of age. So 70 for the non-Aborigines, 50. This is an indictment on the society. That is, they admit 
that the Aboriginal population is more vulnerable because obviously uh, for many of the issues that affect health in pregnancy and later on in life. I do not know why there hasn't been enough emphasis on the pregnancy period that is to, if you are going to, if you want to actually uh, bridge the gap to actually emphasize that very early period, which is the formation of uh, uh, the brain. When we talk about, uh, so we talk about inception and um, those early developmental parts of the brain. Let's go to the other side where you've had environmental stresses, depression, potentially drug and alcohol abuse or use, um, an accident that you may have knocked your head playing sport as a young child or older. What can be done now um, to slow down the inevitability of being the one in two people who's going to have dementia by 85, 86? Right. Uh, well, firstly, uh, yeah, for those who haven't aged yet, uh, to do the uh, right thing and avoid knocks on the head uh, and, and many other things uh, that are predictors, uh, living on busy streets and um, breathing exhaust, uh, having gas in your house and breathing exhaust. In Australia, it's still permissible to have a gas stove and a gas heater. Uh, and you have uh, a combustion of fossil fuels inside your house and you close your windows too because otherwise you lose the, the heat. Uh, but uh, for the uh, person that's already had the course for, through life and now is, uh, has some spare time, well, then the exercise, that's the, uh, that will also make you feel bodily better, stronger, avoid falls, which if you fall, and uh, if you, uh, of course, knock your head, uh, that knocks a few cells off and, and uh, it's a predictor. But can we reverse it? I, I understand the factors that will contribute and I never I, even in my wildest dreams thought about gas heating and gas cooking. Wow. Um, and yes, fossil fuels and yeah, lack of okay. fresh air and oxygen in the home. Yeah. Yeah. But are there ways, do you believe that we're close enough to, now that we've mapped the brain, and, and I understand now we're mapping it in a live brain through MRI studies, is there a, are we close enough to reversal? Because I was reading recently that uh, th there was a case, I think, in the US where they were altering the CRISPR gene for an Alzheimer's patient. Um, but for some of the other things that you spoke about, like ingest, uh, you know, when there's already a predisposition to brain damage, are there things that can reverse it or are we doomed? Uh, no, the, uh, the best thing is to prevent it, uh, not a reversal at the moment uh, or, or arresting is actually what you might be hoping to achieve. So the progression is slowed but it is a progressive degenerative disease. You will keep worse, you'll be worse next year than this year. Now, the question is whether you'll be much worse or just slightly uh, worse. And uh, the uh, as to actually correcting what you have already and get better, uh, they uh, have approved in the FDA in the US 
and medicine for this, but uh, a lot of the scientific community is against that. What and medicine is that? I forgot the, the title of it, but the, the, it's also, of course, a hell of a lot of money, uh, which you can, uh, if you want to achieve societal benefit, you could spend the money in constructing uh, uh, pedestrianized streets so that they can walk in delayed dimension. But they argue that uh, this medicine is producing mini strokes and uh, uh, then therefore it is risky for some people to produce spinning strokes. Uh, so, it, so it's not without ri risk. Uh, and so the, some, some scientists resigned from the body that approved the medication. Uh, so don't hold. So the medication was for um, Alzheimer's right. patients or was it right. as a, a preventative? No. Uh, to, to uh, well, to 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 uh, impede progress and uh, and enhance uh, cognition at present in Alzheimer's patients. And there, I mean, there's a lot of talk about nootropics and um, you know tinctures, um, mushroom derivatives, and I know that there's a drug for um, narcolepsy that you know was very popular in Silicon Valley. Um, that was used as, you know, what they referred to as the limitless drug that would open up the neural pathways in your brain and help you focus better, think better, expand your cognition. Um, do you think that there is a place for that in neuroscience and, and in brain health? As long as the mushrooms are not poisonous, <laughs> uh, it wouldn't hurt. Uh, but uh, the evidence that I read of between comparisons between some uh, nootropic drugs, as you mentioned, uh, and uh, coffee was that there wasn't much in it. Uh, so uh, you don't have much di difference between coffee, which perks you up, uh, and uh, those uh, drugs. So uh, the uh, it's cure to start with, because you mentioned either arrest or cure of uh, dementia, uh, the cure I see uh, uh, far away, if ever. Uh, you could imagine theoretically ways if you identify a substance, let's say a breakdown product that accumulates in the brain, let's say uh, that produces those plaques, that's amyloid protein that accumulates there and interferes, the plaques interfere then with the function of the brain, that you can actually shake it off with ultrasound, uh, and they tried that. But when they tried on humans, it didn't work. Uh, strangely, in the rat, it worked. So what were they doing with the ultrasound? They were creating a vibration to remove the plaque from the parts of the brain that were affected? Shaking it off, yeah. Uh, and so you could theoretically think of ways of reversing the symptoms if you find the product, uh, the say degradation byproduct from the brain that accumulates there and shouldn't be there should have been transported out of the brain but wasn't and you managed to encourage that product to get out but so far yeah, they haven't succeeded uh, and uh, uh, therefore to cure the disease since it's not only for accumulation of byproduct but also cell death right that's and right also accumulation 
of products not outside of the cell, but as the plaques are, but inside the neuron. That is, a neuron uh, needs to expel those things that are then uh, useless, uh, but with age, they have inability to do that uh, a number of the neurons and they accumulate, they call them inclusions that self-explanatory inclusions. They include something that they shouldn't, they should have expelled it. Well, if you have those, I can't see that be an easy way to expel them. They might find one day a way, but it looks uh, dif very difficult and they interfere. So you're not going to correct that person, even if you get rid of some of the other stuff that accumulates outside the neuron, and that might confer some, uh, confers confer some benefit, you will still have the inclusions inside the neuron. And maybe one day you'll manage to encourage the neuron to expel those inclusions and improve even their situation. And then you're faced with the cell death, that neurons die. Well, you mentioned uh, uh, the uh, neurogenesis. I think there is, as neuro, many neuroscientists, many people at large think that the neuroscientist discovers something. This is known for a long time that there's you know, cells that are born and they have taken advantage, uh, the rehabilitation specialists, of retraining the person in maths, in language, in uh, skills. Uh, but we have to keep that into perspective. I tried that as well in uh, uh, mice with. Um, stimulation uh, because the cage is barren, but if you provide uh, some uh, 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 the, the paper that you use to scratch the walls, the- Yes, yes, sanding sun paper. Sandpaper. Well, the, the mouse has texture to work in on this better stimulation of the brain. If you provide toys, if you, if you provide corn specifics, another mouse, then they interact and see how I, I could uh, uh, get it, it to, how could encourage the cells to divide to produce more. Well, you can produce some, perhaps in some areas. You know, you have to view the perspective. You're not going to get uh, a, a, a great uh, uh, leaps forward with this. You might, amongst other things, and you could also consider that to encourage. Uh, uh, cell uh, prolif uh, proliferation, regeneration, or, or uh, greater division to let the cell divide longer to produce more descendants. Uh, but uh, the uh, that you will either cure, uh, uh, well, firstly, to cure dementia sounds to me far in the future. Uh, I heard the Nobelist uh, 20 uh, years ago who said that uh, he came to Australia and he was sitting on a high horse and uh, <laughs> that he uh, expects in 20 years time Alzheimer's disease will be cured. Well, uh, there's no evidence for that. Uh, and 20 years have passed. Uh, so uh, let's be humble. Uh, there's going to be difficult to cure uh, disease. It'll be uh, perhaps uh, achievable to delay, to slow down the progression of the disease. 
And of course, the best thing of all uh, as a lifestyle from early on to do your exercise uh, so that uh, 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 keeping the motto of uh, uh, that uh, whatever is good for the heart is good for the brain. Professor Paxanos, I'm curious to know what you do, what your um, brain uh, health regime looks like. I know that you're a, an avid cyclist. I know that you have written many books, you know, speaking to neuroplasticity and, and also a fictional book, uh, A River Divided. Um, but what else do you do that you are fanatical about and uncompromising for your brain health? I never just actually considered solely for brain health. I thought that it would be better to avoid uh, alcohol. Uh, I have also trouble in, in coping with alcohol with my stomach being sensitive. Uh, and uh, that assisted in actually not drinking any alcohol. But really, uh, people should look at what the National Health and Medical Research Council suggests they said no more than one drink of alcohol per day. Alcohol is a neurotoxin. Of course, you can have a lot of fun with one drink or maybe two even more. And a few cells you can afford to lose, but if you do it consistently, more than one drink per day, then it is detrimental to the brain. So. That's one thing incidental that uh, it came about. I also can't handle fast food uh, and um, that then um, put me on the other camp. So uh, it'd be fresh food, unprocessed. Uh, and uh, the, in terms of actual scientific evidence, they speak of the Mediterranean diet being uh, important in postponing dementia. Uh, and uh, uh, the uh, Mediterranean diet, uh, you have to look at what definition you would use, but certainly fresh things. Uh, seasonal things. Seasonal things, yes. And not uh, uh, too much meat, uh, to include fish, you know, to ignore that. Uh, and certainly what scientists have found uh, is uh, that uh, the uh, less you eat, <laughs> the better you are. If you uh, deprive rats of what they would, their cage mates eat ad libitum, free, uh, and restricted by one quarter, right? So they eat less. They, they don't have the food. You don't give them the food, right? They actually live uh, about a year more from three to four years, and they remain lucid longer. So if anything is uh, actually harmful, is uh, eating because obviously you have to go through a lot of uh, chemicals that are already in the food, uh, even if it's uh, uh, the uh, and not specifically uh, used chemicals of them, they will find their way to the neighboring plots that are organic. And even there, you get some. So, yeah, I mean, there are ways, but I didn't do that in, for, uh, I, I like uh, uh, my food, and so didn't do it specifically to remain uh, lucid. But of course, as you said, uh, cycling. Uh, and actually, you did mention the, uh, the, the book, and 
uh, a river divided. Thank you for mentioning that. It turns out that for me, that's actually uh, what took longer to do, that is uh, 21 years uh, uh, than anything. And I considered that to be the best work uh, that I had done of my works that I've done. Uh, uh, and uh, the, uh, incidentally, it was, uh, uh, one I was just before submitting it, a lady friend uh, saw me at the coffee shop in Bordeaux Junction writing it and she said, how is it going? And I said, well, 21 years still haven't finished. She said, my cousin's novel was published posthumously. <laughs> wow, if that's not a wake-up call. Yeah, I said, I better submit it. Uh, well, Yes, yeah, so she was um, uh, giving me hope, you see. Uh, so uh, anyway, so yeah, in that book, I describe... Uh, it's a fictional work. It's a great, great premise. Yeah, it, it's a fictional work. And uh, if the things that we discussed just prior, they are inside the book, uh, because as it turns out, uh, that's what I knew. I wanted, of course, to... Uh, write uh, something that will take uh, uh, the reader uh, through the arc of the hero and sensitize them on uh, the environmental predicament. Uh, and I uh, used things I knew uh, from uh, uh, neuropsychology and environmental science uh, to uh, do this. And of course, always uh, in... Um, the style of a novel, not, not didactic. Uh, and yeah, they will find things about the brain there um, that, uh, yeah, I encountered. It was my journey uh, through the brain the last uh, virtually 60 years, really, that I've been looking at something related to the brain under the microscope or uh, in, uh, testing rats and occasionally uh, humans. Uh, and uh, and yeah. you poured that into the book. You, uh, I read that you have also mapped the um, spinal cord. Uh, is that in uh, post mortem or is that through MRI? Uh, post mortem, the spinal cord of uh, the rat, mouse, uh, rhesus monkey, marmoset, and human. And, the human and what did you learn about the spinal cord in that mapping process? Well, what we describe there are what it is there, that is identifying the various parts and using the same names as we gave for the uh, for, for each other, for the animals and humans. And uh, just to let you uh, know how uh, the field was poor, uh, that there was no diagrammatic atlas of the human spinal cord until we did ours. Uh, some uh, uh, 12 years ago. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, we found uh, that there are variabilities, that is that not all humans uh, have uh, the, the same location where uh, the uh, nerves uh, originate uh, and uh, the uh, correspondences with the rat is good, but it's not absolute, there are differences. So that's what we provide because those uh, scientists who want to study an, a, a rat model of uh, a human spinal cord disease, they need to know 
the correspondences uh, to make the right uh, inferences. Professor Paxanos, uh, what about uh, now that we're able to study uh, the atlas of the brain via MRI? What what have what have you found? to overlay the original um, study and research and body of work that you created? Yes, the, the original work on uh, histology, this post-mortem, uh, is uh, very accurate, but it depicts uh, something that people do not see on their screen when they have a, a living human person in front of them because it's different, it's a stain, it's not an image from the living brain. And so we wanted to be uh, showing them uh, what they see and identify what is there in what they see. Uh, so um, uh, they uh, it, it be more real. Uh, it's exactly what they are seeing in front of them that we have mapped from one end of the brain to the other. That is, a, a, a clinician or even a scientist will be lost to just have an image of a part of the brain. Where, where am I? What's behind this? What's ahead of it? What's above? What's below? Well, we present uh, at every one millimeter, uh, 160 levels, right? We present what is there. So and the, how is that possible? I mean, that would have taken an enormous effort because everyone knows an MRI, you can't move, you can't, you can barely breathe. Um, and to then map all those sections of the brain live, did, did you do it? Were, were you the person in the MRI scan? My brain is uh, not suitable anymore. I put my colleague of 45 years of age uh, to do this, and his brain is scanned, uh, the brain with age shrinks. And mine, uh, like, uh, like everybody else's, uh, has shrunk. Uh, not as much, I was told, uh, luckily, by when I recently volunteered for brain scan, they wanted somebody my age, that uh, my brain did not shrink as much as expected for my age. So uh, they, it brought me not bad news, right? Uh, and uh, so his brain is the one that uh, was imaged. And he stayed uh, over a number of occasions, 20 hours in the magnet. Unbelievable. And he was also trained not to move. And uh, so we got uh, images which we believe uh, are unsurpassed. So we expect to be able to do a more accurate atlas of the human brain than what have, is, exists as, as so far. I, I have one last question to wrap up our conversation. And again, it comes from popular science and certainly I'm not a scientist, but there's a lot of conversation that the gut is the second brain and so much about gut wellness, gut microbiomes, and brain health are linked. And of course, you alluded to the fact that diet and the Mediterranean diet, and certainly the studies from Blue Zone suggest that diet exercise um, have a huge impact on brain health, heart health, longevity, lifespan, health span. But have you ever worked 
in, uh, in unison with a gastroenterologist or anyone else who's studying the gut microbiome vis-a-vis -vis the brain health? I haven't, but there certainly articles in the literature that report such interactions. There's even a journal uh, that's dedicated to that. Uh, the issue, of course, is that whatever the gut does, it will have to pass through the brain. That is the uh, hegemon. That is it. Uh, that is, I can remove your gut and uh, you'll still be Bahar. But uh, if I remove part of your brain, you will not be the personality you uh, were. Uh, that is, uh, uh, their influences, even the muscles, when you exercise them, they release certain chemicals, which it is argued by some that find their way to the brain and they actually produce this euphoria that people have been attributing to endorphins. Uh, and who knows, it could be that they engage the endorphins. So whatever you think of uh, peripherally uh, to affect your mood, uh, to affect uh, whatever it is that you want, it'll be uh, even your lucidity remaining lucid uh, longer, it will be through the brain. Uh, so yeah, the peripheral system is there for something, uh, but uh, it'll have to be uh, the brain that it works through. Uh, and uh, I mean, and you may, we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, uh, IQ and how it is determined by a genetic component, uh, the endowment in environmental, uh, component, uh, much anything else actually is similarly affected. And uh, in my novel, I have identical twins. Uh, they were born following a formidable discovery in uh, Israel. Uh, and uh, the uh, this hum involving human cloning now and uh, they were raised in different environments, one in affluent Sydney and the other in the slums of Buenos Aires. And uh, uh, much like different artists would sculpt different statues from the same block of marble, different environments will uh, form different characters even in identical twins. So I have used things from psychology to form the two heroes according to the environmental influences on them, but maintaining some genetic predisposition. They will collide in the Amazon on the opposite sides. That is why it's called the river divided because they come accidentally from an accidental division of the uh, embryo when the uh, scientists, uh, uh, geneticists attempted to aspirate some cells to consider whether the embryo had any of the known culprits of disease and accidentally divided the embryo in half. And so uh, they are identical and uh, uh, you will see how the genes actually influence behavior and how 
the environment also influences behavior and that makes use of what is known in psychology and neuroscience at large uh, that uh, identical twins if one is uh, for example um, predisposed has is is homosexual the probability that the other one will also be homosexual is 50 percent which shows that it's a significant contribution of genes 50 times as uh, higher than if they were not related uh, but still shows that the environment has an influence because it's not a hundred percent yeah so you would see that uh, the nature versus nurture or as now it is called nature via nurture uh, forms uh, behavior and i hope that uh, anybody who might uh, look at it they will get a uh, an appreciation of actually the difficulty uh, humanity is uh, as it presents the environment, our capacity of the brain that it's not a perfect organ, that uh, 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 that we should not uh, use the hubris that were made in the image of God, more like in the image of the chimpanzee. <laughs> well. And, and and before we leave, I would like to, to wish your uh, listeners uh, that their brain shrinks less than expected for their age. I love that that's the signature on your email. I saw that the other day and I smiled to myself and I thought, well, that is a wonderful blessing and a beautiful message to end on. Professor George Paxanos, I'm so delighted to have spoken to you. I am terrified uh, because I just turned 49. So I think, you know, gosh, I, I missed 49 years of good behavior, but there is hope for me yet. And um, I do exercise. I do fast. Um, I don't drink as, a, as much as I used to. And um, I'm really, really just delighted to have had this conversation with you. Thank you. Pleasure to have been with you. See you, Mahara. Thank you. Ageless by Rescue is brought to you by Rescue Me Academy, Reignite Your Relationship course. Love your relationship but miss the early days? You're not alone. This course will teach you how to identify your issues, stop the fighting, find what you need to be happy, re-spark intimacy and keep the lines of communication open. Join us at rescuemeacademy.com.au to learn more about the program and to download your first free lesson. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please share and rate this episode. I'd love that. 